All right. Figured we'd review quickly uh, last week's lesson. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 is what we went through, if you recall that. And it was kind of right at the end there, we kind of dissected that verse. And uh, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So children, obey your parents. Remember we had this circle here, and we said this is a God word, circle. And here's our little guy. Whoops. And we said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Those are the two things that are instructed for the child to do. Honor your father and mother and obey, obey your father and mother and honor. And it, we said that if you do these two things, there was a result. That it will go well with you and you will live long. Long life. Those were the, the results of it. And as long as you operate within this continuum, within obeying and honoring, these other things will happen. It will live, you will live long and go well, is what Ephesians 1, 6, 1 through 3 is saying. But what happens is, often our child will come out here, and they're living outside of this circle of, of blessing. They have chosen to be out of the umbrella or the protection of what God's word says, and now they're in danger. There's a problem here. They've dishonored, they've disobeyed, so now they're outside of this potential circle of blessing. Therefore, it is our job with correction and with discipline to bring them back into the circle. You might recall that. That was the whole, exactly what, it, what we need to do. That is our job, is, is to get them to come back out of a dangerous position into one of, of honor and obedience. And uh, we're not just looking for compliance, we're looking for their heart. We're looking for them to be enjoying the right things uh, of the Lord. It's always true. The path of honor is the path of blessing. Uh, other children in, uh, in the culture don't have this process in their mind. They don't think about doing something because it's honoring the Lord or the fact that they would uh, live long or things would go well because Scripture says it is. They just know that, oh, if I do wrong, I'm going to get a spanking. I do wrong, I don't get this. I do wrong, I get these consequences. So we're doing it with a different purpose. There's a rescue mission involved here. So I wanted to take, and, uh, take some time to, uh, to define obedience. Let's define obedience. Obedience is submission to God's authority that causes a child to do what he has been told. So it's submission of God's authority that causes a child to do what he's been told. So it's that submission process. And there's three ways that we like to see it happen that, that will make sure that you're doing it correctly. The first is without challenge. Without challenge. Your children should not be challenging what it is you're telling them to do. You tell them something, but dad, I, I want to do this, but dad. You always get that but, whatever. And uh, so there shouldn't be challenging, no, I don't want to. Or you tell your child, you know, go make your bed, no. Well, that should not happen. There should not be a negative there. There shouldn't be a challenge. Secondly is without excuse. There should not be an excuse for this. Obedience doesn't say, I'm going to excuse what I've been told because my mind says that I'm smarter than you, dad, and I'm going to go and do something else. So dads, we've got to recognize that, that when you hear these excuses, we're going to get into a, an appeal process later on, but uh, excuses shouldn't happen as a way to get out of what's going on here. And the third is without delay, without delay. So there should be an immediate response from your child that, that does what they're told to do. 
All children know that there's a time to obey. It's a matter of when that time is. Why not call them to a first-time obedience, the very first time you call them? You've seen it. Call your child, and they don't, or you see somebody in the grocery store. I wouldn't say it's any of your children in this, in this, play, in this room. You know, they're at the grocery store. They tell their kid, come over here. And the child runs the opposite direction. Stop. Kid runs the other direction. I said, stop. Now, I'm going to count to 10. You better be over here. What are they doing? They're just allowing the process to be challenged and to be with the child doing what they want and in a delay there. It's not till the parent's face turns red, the hair standing up on the back of their neck, and you see the flames coming out. The child says, oh, okay, it's time to obey. Now I'll go do what you want. The child learns when that time occurs, don't they? They know when mom means business. They know when dad has said something and, okay, now is the time. I I think I better do it now because there will be consequences if I don't. Part of this whole process is uh, they need to honor us. So it's honoring the Lord. It's also honoring your father and mother. Remember the shelves of the warehouse. You know, we got all these rows in the warehouse there, and some of those shelves have it, honor your father and mother, right here from Ephesians 6. That's one of the things that should be there. They should be honoring you as parents. You want to teach that into them. That's where the little robot should find something on the shelf, pull it and put it up into their conscience, saying you need to act upon what you've just been told. Part of this also, you don't let them speak in the imperative, ordering you around. Mommy, get me a glass of milk. Mommy, I want this. Daddy, I want to do this now. Well, that's ordering you around. You need to teach them the right words all the way from an early age that they don't instruct you. That's not right for them to do that because that's them taking the authority there. A part of that is teaching them the importance of honoring God. So if they learn to honor you at this level as the parents, eventually this is going to be transferred fully over to God when they understand the whole concept that they now need to honor God because in my life, and I can share this with my kids, if I'm not honoring God and what I'm doing, I'm going to have some issues. I'm going to have some problems. I've just disobeyed the Lord. He is going to have consequences. I can see direct correlation between the two. When I am not in obedience to the Lord, I just see his chastisement on me to bring me back in. Grant, you're screwing up again. You're sinning, and, uh, and he'll do that. We want to teach them that. Children under authority do well in the world because they are a part of God's circle of blessing. It, it will go well, and they will get favor in other people's eyes often, but more importantly, in the Lord's eyes. And this teaches them to be under authority. They have to obey an authority. And we talked about the different levels of, of respect. Well, they have the authority of teachers. They have authority of government officials. They have authority of the pastor or the Sunday school teacher. You're going to need in that process as your child grows to teach them to be under whatever authority it is. And, you know, when they're one, two years old, they're just growing up and they have uh, all of a sudden they have a a nursery worker there who is in authority instead of you because you've now put them in a nursery. Well, they have to learn the authority of that individual. That moves to a first grade teacher. Whatever those processes are, we're teaching them to be under authority because if they obey that authority, they honor that authority, this is what God wants them to do. But we sadly give our authority away, don't we? We, uh, we do that. We need to give godly direction. At an early age, decisions should not be a matter of the child's choice. The children often, they want to do things on their own. They want to make their own choices, and we have to act like a funnel for them. And, and we say, no, this is where I'm going to allow you boundaries to, uh, to do the things that I want you to do that are within the range of your abilities right now. And often, well, I don't know if I've, I haven't done the funnel yet, have I? I'll go ahead and fit that in. So here's basically, um, 
here's your child, and, and let's say they're two years old, and you're going to have a certain amount of things that they can and can't do. Well, you can expand that and allow them to do certain things that are, are um, anywhere along a continuum up, up here. As they get older, you're going to give them more and more freedom, right? They start off, and you have just a certain set of rules. And if you go, okay, I think that at two years old, it's okay for them to go into the refrigerator and get their own food. I think it's okay for them to walk out into the street you know, this is where they're at instead of the funnel. No, we have to draw the lines, these boundaries of what is and is not acceptable for them to do. What we can do as parents, though, is make this funnel way too tight so they're 15 years old and they're still not allowed to go into the, they're right here, they're not allowed to go into the refrigerator. What have we done? Well, it's the next verse of Ephesians. We've exasperated our kids. So we have to be very cautious where we put these boundaries on them, this funnel where we take their age-appropriate needs and we have them doing things within the context of what makes sense for the authority we want to give them at that time. I shared with you the story of, of Charlie Emdy, my, uh, the guy, um, my, my boss who the business I took over where the guy was murdered. I shared that with you, didn't I? I know I did. Um, well, his dad would come, after this all happened within the next year or so, the father would come into my office, an uh, older gentleman in his late 80s, and he would just sit across the table from me and just weep. He would just cry, says, Grant, you know, because he had three sons. One went to jail for bank robbery and accessory. The other went and killed the other one and, and went to prison for that and then committed suicide. But he would just weep. He says, Grant, I gave away my authority. I should have been drawing my boundaries here. I should have been taking better care and actually disciplining my kids. I let them get way out because I thought I wanted them happy. I wasn't after their holiness. And he was sharing just what a grief it was to him. He was not rescuing them. They were out here, and he was not trying to bring them into that circle at an early age. And it hurts. Okay. Um, I want to talk about the relational goal of parenting next, the relational goal. This is the goal, not the starting point of your parenting. Where, where is it that we want to have our kids that relationally we will work with them? All of us want to be the friends of our kids, don't we? We want to be their friend and you know, have them be the uh, buddies and stuff like that. We have to disciple them from where they're at as an infant to a point where we will be their friends. And, and there's a, a process here. There's going to be plenty of time for friendships later on in their life. You can't, though, start out as buddies. Hey, you're my buddy. Um, if they are on an equal with you, then how can you have authority over them? You know, so you can't just say, we are equal, and I'm going to do everything that you're doing. You're going to do everything with me. No, we have to have a, a process that gets us from being their uh, authoritarian all the way to their friend. And there's four different phases of parenting that we've broken this down into. So I wanted to cover these with you, four phases of parenting. Phase one is the discipline phase. And this is zero to five. The first five years, this is the hard part. This is them learning the rules. You as mom and dad are saying, here are the rules. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. And you, day in, day out, it seems like every single day you're working with these rules. No, you shouldn't do that. Yes, you should do this. Your primary goal during this time is to establish your right to lead uh, their little lives. So this is the first five years. It's not an oppressive um, uh, situation over them, but authoritative. Having some boundaries, this funnel, the right tight boundaries to begin with, not unlimited freedom until they demonstrate that they are responsible, that they can handle the freedoms that you give them. 
If you can't control your child, you can't effectively train him to his full potential because they're, they're out of control. You can't get them to sit down and, and listen to you because they're just wild. And, and we've all seen this. Even I've seen it in my own kids. There are times when this happens. So this is really teaching self-control. How do you control yourself, little one? And I remember some of our kids, it just was the hardest thing for them to control themselves in that age. They just, they got so much energy in them and they just want to run and do something and, and they don't know where to funnel that energy, especially in the Oweiler family. We've got a lot of energy and, and I think it passed on to the kids. So how do you control that? Um, that's a process of discipline to say, no, we have to teach self-control. Sometimes it's as simple as sitting him on a chair and saying, okay, I do not want you to move a single muscle. Let's see how long you can do that. And, and we had one that well, I think he got up to about five seconds. He just could not stop moving. It was, there was always just something moving. It's like, no, stop every single muscle. And it could. He just didn't have that self-control. And we did it for a purpose. Back then, we wanted to train our kids to be able to sit very still because we wanted them in church, not disturbing people. There was a reason for that. We, and we said, we want to learn so that you're not disturbing other people. And we would walk into church, and we'd have all six of them with us, and they would all sit there. And we would sit through the whole church service with them at an early age because we trained them with self-control, just sit there. And sometimes we'd give them coloring, we'd, you know, something to establish their energy, a place for it. But it took discipline to do this. So that's the first five years is the discipline, just bringing precept upon precept that you're teaching them, say, no, this is a situation, and here's what we do. It's, it's learning how to interact with society around them. You know, they get other uh, kids. How do they interact with them, what they can and can't do? No, you don't go up and just kick your friend. That's just not acceptable. So you teach that process in discipline. No, you can't scream at the top of your lungs. That is unacceptable in the house. Now, if you're outside playing in the yard and your brother's just having a great time, great, do it. So you teach those things when we use your inside voice or whatever the things that we teach them. So that's the first is discipline. This is learning the rules. Now, think of this in a sports analogy, guys. I'll speak to you guys. So you're going to play a game, let's say football. First, before you can go out on the field, you have to learn, oh, well, what is a line of scrimmage? What is a football? What is a down? What is, when do you start? What is the goal? You're learning the rules of the game. Before you can play the whole thing, you have to first learn what is it you're trying to do. Okay? So think of the first phase as learning the rules. The second phase is training. And this is age 6 to 12. And it's not you know, as soon as they hit their sixth birthday. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't discipline you anymore. I've got to train you. No, it's, it's about in there. It's, it's a generality. Um, kind of like a trainer would take, for a football analogy, would take you and work you through some drill sets. Okay, here's how we're going to run this certain flare pattern. Or, or here's where we're going to do a block and, and a, a shift off to the left. You, you would learn the plays. And so he sets you in place and he moves you along in those plays. Okay, you're going to go this way and you're going to go this way. There's a teaching and a training process in 6 to 12. They're kind of doing it themselves a lot of this, a lot of this time. But at any time, you as dad can stop because you're big and you can have control over their lives. You can stop and say, no, this isn't the right way. We need to adjust and we need to do it this way. You pick them up still and and move them, whatever you need to, in this training process. And you would explain the reasons. Okay, so we don't want to block in this manner because it's going to let the guy come on your right shoulder. You teach him some certain things about that process. In the same way in the parenting process, no, you don't want to go and pull flowers from the neighbor's yard because it's nice that you want to give mommy some flowers, but those are his. And so you train your kids on certain things. You, you stop them in the process of what they're doing, showing them what to do and how to do it. 
That's the training phase. And that's going to be a little bit easier. If you did your job in the discipline phase, learning the rules, it's much easier for them now to follow in the training stage because they're training to the rules. They're not training to rules that don't exist. Do you follow? And that's where the first six years are really critical. The third phase, phase three, is coaching. Coaching. And this is about age 13 to 19, somewhere in there. Um, children are now in the game of life themselves. They're running the plays. They're out on the field. Uh, we're on the sidelines. Yeah, we can call timeouts. We can have huddles. We can talk to them. We can kind of stop the game for uh, periodically here and there, for, but not for real long extended periods of time. They're making decisions that are going to affect them. They call the plays themselves sometimes, and they're going to move the ball forward or backwards. And we're watching the side and trying to give them some coaching from the side. That's why it's a coaching. We're not out there. I mean, they're making decisions that are affecting the outcome of the game. So how well you coach now determines how well they're going to run through the plays of life when, when they're making these decisions in this teen years. And what kind of trainer you were determined on how they responded to your coaching. So if you trained them well, and they said, yeah, Dad had some good ideas. I'm going to go talk to Dad. During this 13 and 19-year age, now you can see that, that they want to come back to you. They want to say, hey, I want to know better how to do this. I want to know better how to do this because you're, you're now the coach, and they want to learn. They want to get better at the process. Just like a kid in, in baseball or football, he wants to be able to throw a curveball. Teach me how to throw a slider. I didn't know how to do that. So they come to you and they ask these things. <coughs> the type of disciplinarian, disciplinarian you are determines your ability to train. So it's, it's a process. If you weren't good at setting that foundation, you're going to have harder time along the line as they get older. Fourth phase is friendship. This is ultimately what we're after. It's the relational goal of parenting is friendship with our kids. This is what we all desire. Uh, will we still be their parent? We're going to still be their parents, but, but they're going to enter into a new phase of life of freedom where they can go and do anything they want. And you see this in the church often where kids will grow up in the church and they're obedient, they're doing all these things, and, and they look like they're great. They turn 18 and, man, they are gone. Left field, they don't want to have anything to do with mom and dad, and, and they go wild. Well, it's because there was not a relationship that they wanted to continue on in these older age. Often it's because we didn't move past this funnel that was so tight, we left them right over here in a disciplinarian stage when they're 15 years old and we're still disciplining, trying to teach them and, and train them in ways that we should have taught them and set as standards and goals way back then, and we never did. Therefore, we never let the funnel come back out to where it needs to be, and so they're way up here and they're able to enjoy um, the relationship much better. We have to move from the authoritarian to a trainer to a coach. And you see the process there? If, if you just, or, nope, we still got to go over the rules, and you're beating over the head when they're 20 years old at your house over what the rules are, it's because you didn't establish your authority to begin with. It's going to exasperate your child. We may obtain outward obedience, but inwardly, their heart isn't following. Inwardly, their heart is going, ah, I don't want to do this. I'll obey dad because I have to, because I, it's going to get me what I want, but I don't want to. That's where the friendship moves. And don't you, isn't that what you want is eventually where they come as a friend to you? And I think that's the joy when you watch kids that, that do this and they call you up and say, Dad, i got some questions about something. Can I, can I come take you out to a coffee and let's just chat? That's, that's gold, guys. That's, that's where you want that relationship to be with each one of your kids so that they're looking for your advice because they, they trust you. They saw that you wanted to help them here as a rescue mission rather than you're an authoritarian and you want to ruin my life. You don't want to make my life fun. 
starts way back there. So that's kind of the, the four phases of, or to the relational goal of parenting. We talked briefly about family identity already. I wanted to kind of cover it a little better here. When your beco- children become old enough to select their own friends, will you have given them any reason to select you as their friends? You know, it's fun to ask your, your kids, you know, who's your best friends? And to be listed in that list, that's pretty cool. You know, to have them say, yeah, that's one of my best friends is my, my parents. Do your children consider you to be a part of their inner circle of most desirous and loyal friendships? That's, if you can get to that point, that, that makes parenting just such an absolute joy where they want to be around you. That's, that's the goal. And that's where we talked about the independent family versus the interdependent. I think I remember we talked about uh, here's two families and they're holding hands. We talked about that where they're facing outward away from each other. That was the one. Uh, that's an independent family. They're each doing, well, maybe you don't have that many kids, the Jones family. We like that. Um, Signals from the outside, the family, are what's driving them. They're all doing their own thing, uh, choosing what they want to do in life. Um, Their conduct, their values, their standards are all coming from outside because they just frankly aren't, they're so busy with their other things. It pulls them away from the family. Each child is absorbed in their own world, and it can even start when they're young, you know, absorbed in their Legos, absorbed in their, their dolls where they're not participating in the family. And you have to call them to this, to be a part of the family, to do things together. Rejection um, may not come through rebellion, but through non-rebellious activities. Their sports and things like that, they're just, they'll go off into those things, and they won't be a part of what you're doing. Sibling rivalry. Ah, this kid's getting too much attention with his baseball games, or this one with her gymnastics or whatever it is, and there's a, there's a competition that goes on there. Um, this is where we need to change it for the in, inter, interdependent family, where they're all looking inward. So we're seeing what's going on with every family member as they're doing it, and we're all excited about it. We're all talking about it. It's, it becomes the family conversation about each one, and we go to each other's games. We go to each other's plays. Um, you're sending and receiving signals from each other. You're excited when a child, one of the siblings, does something and gets some rewards. And those are the things that draw you close together. They're dependent on each other. Um, individualism can be the enemy of family devotions as well. So if they're independent here, how do you do family devotions? You're just running from one activity to another as a taxi driver is what you end up being. As opposed to here, you see the value of it. And you say, okay, right here, this is going to be one of our focuses is on Thursday nights and uh, Saturday nights, we're going to spend time in God's Word together as a family just sitting on the couch. And you set those times for that. It's so much easier because that becomes a priority instead of something like this. A child weaned at an early age on outside influences who depends on his peers for satisfaction as basic social needs is going to go, grow up very sensitive to group pressure and group peer, uh, peer pressure and, and really the yeah, group approval or disapproval. That's where their norms are going to come from, what's going on outside the world instead of with the family where it's together. So you need to teach your family that the family is more important than their individual pursuits. Let them know. You know what? You have a a baseball game. We're going to all go to that. We're going to sit there. But you know what? You can't go do such and such because we have to go over and do something else because this thing is important for us to be together. So you identify those, that the individual pursuits are great, but we still want to collectively as a family work together. Peer pressure then is only as strong as family identity is weak. If you have a family identity that says this is who we are, that's going to remove the peer pressure there. Okay? 
So another part of this whole thing is, is rela- uh, taking relational inventory of your child. And I kind of give you a chart there to work with. Um, just as a soccer coach, a football coach, baseball coach would do an inventory of the skill set that uh, a kid would have, you know, they've got this down or, or that down, um, they, they would build strategies and goals for that child, wouldn't they? They say, hey, we need to work on your passing, or we need to work on your blocking, or we need to work on your, your uh, what is it, uh, in ballet, some of the things, uh, your plie. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, those kind of, we need to work on those things because you're, you need some help there. It's not as good as it should be. So in the same way, you do this as a constant evaluation for your children. Where do they need correction? Same thing with our walk with Christ, isn't it? With Christ, we should be looking at, okay, you know, here's areas of my life I need to work on. Some sin in this area where I'm, I'm just maybe weak in Bible study or sharing the gospel or in memorization. And this is really being a student of your child. You, you need to take time to look and watch and see what they're doing. A lot of questions. Deuteronomy 6, when you're driving in the car, when you're going to bed at night, when you're you know, going out for co- coffee with them. Those are the areas you make time for these things. I don't think that's in Deuteronomy 6 about the coffee or the, or the car. Okay, so first, there, there's three different areas that you want to evaluate. And the first, I'll draw this little box over here. The first one would be his relationship to God, okay? Upward. So we'll put a big box here. So his Godward view. What, how does he re- review or relate to his relationship with God? What, what does God mean to your child? At, at any age, you can start this process. Is he aware that he even needs God? Is God a part of his life that he understands this? Whoever this person is, I go to Sunday school and I learn about God and Jesus and, and how that all works. Does he have a concern to know God? You know, I remember our, our, one of our daughters at a very young age praying, saying, I just want to see Jesus. You know, she just, in her heart, she, she just wanted to see Jesus. She, didn't, she wanted him to come down. She wanted to see him, and that's where her heart was. And so you take a conversation like that, and you go, well, why? What is it that you want to see about him? What is it you want to know? And so she'd been hearing Bible stories, and she needs to translate into his life. Um, does your child have a, a concern for God's word or for truth? These are things that you want to ask questions and you assess at each age. Is there something in there that I can work on and and build from? How do his or her actions and words indicate that they think about God? Especially as a child starts getting older, six, seven, eight, nine years old. Those are great times when you start having these conversations. What do they think about God? This is driving to church. This is after dinner, around the dinner table time. Yeah, we can sit and watch TV and do those things, but wasn't it better to talk about their relationship with God? This is Deuteronomy 6. How does he view God? As a judge, God's just waiting there to squash me like a little cockroach? That's what my view was as a kid. I was always afraid that God is just going to come down and get me because I did something wrong. Or as a, as a friend. God is my friend. God is someone I can speak to. He's God my helper. These are great ways. And you prompt it. You prompt questions. How do you see God? And, and maybe you have to think ahead of time. God forbid we have to do that before we have conversations. I, I have a hard time with that sometimes. But, but think ahead of time. These are the three things I want to ask my child. And just make it part of the conversation. Maybe it's when you're putting them in bed at night and you're just stroking the hair and just chatting with them. Challenging them. If their words don't match that they say there, their actions. So they said this about God, but your actions aren't matching it. Maybe we need to work on that. And maybe it's not judging them. Maybe this is during that coaching phase when they're in their teens and you're saying, you know what, you're, 
are your actions really matching up to what you just said? And it makes them look at their relationship with God. That's what we want them to do. We want them to look Godward, to see that relationship there. Second one is his relationship to himself. So here's our little guy. And it's this way. Towards himself. How does he view himself? There's a ton of questions here. What are his own strengths and weaknesses? Does he recognize that he has a problem with lying? Does he recognize he has a, a problem with commitment or following through or completing tasks? These are things, great things to ask. How does he relate to himself? You know, does he think that he's awkward and you know, weird because he has the wrong tennis shoes? Or whatever those little questions are about his friends. And, and how, well, we'll get into the friends in a minute, but about himself here. Don't you wish your parents would have done an evaluation with you? this type of thing to make you think on this level. I know I just normally don't think on this level, but to force it and to ask the questions to prompt it is going to make a child far more introspective who will be able to say, ah, there's something missing here. I need to work on something. Does he understand his own personality? What are you know things that make people mad about him, things happy about him? You know, Is he way over the top, just always funny, or is he just really serious? Does he know that, and does he know how that relates with others because of that? You know, what makes that child tick? What gets him excited? What doesn't? These are the millions and millions of questions as you're doing a relational inventory. I don't think we've mentioned the five love languages. I'm sure some of you guys have heard of that, the book by Gary, Chap- Gary Chapman. Yeah, um, it, it helps you to evaluate on what level do you like to be told that you're loved and do you like to love other people? You know, there's, there's different ways. Is it touch? Is it gifts? Is it words of encouragement? Is it... Uh, boy, Time, yeah, quality time. Uh, acts of service, there's the other one. So do you guys have. Okay. Evaluate that with them. You know, what, what one of these things, and you notice your kid just loves to just do things for other people. That's great. Encourage it. You want to work on all five of them with him so that he wants to be a, a helper to others. But, but make them think this way. What do they think about themselves and how do they operate? That will help him to understand his relationship to himself. Thirdly is his relationship with others with others. What kind of relationships does he have and does he choose or she choose? You know, which friends bring out the best in them? You know, when they're around this child, no, you mean you go out of control. Do you know that? You know, sometimes they don't even recognize that, that they that they do that. And maybe after a friend comes over and has left, that's the time to talk about that. Do you realize how when you played with that child, it was you just had so much fun, you enjoyed it and it was calm and it was peaceful here. But you remember last week when the other one came over and remember just it was just chaos wasn't it your toys were a mess when they left and what what did you like about this versus this and and so you let them see these things how they relate with others what kind of friends do they choose you know ah i like this friend but i don't like that kind of friend why great questions then what are the strengths and weaknesses of these relationships you know which ones are strong and for what reasons what is it that you like about doing this? And we, thankfully for the younger kids, we can control those influences, can't we? We can have them hang around certain friends. It's like forcing them. It's almost like you know, marriage and you know, planning which one your child's going to marry just because it's the only other you know, person of the opposite sex you ever let her meet or something. I don't know. You, you kind of set these things up where I will um, uh, um, cognitively choose to try to set up relationships so that they have friends that I want them to be around because it rubs off on them. That's a great thing for them if they're good friends. And through that, where they should be growing. You know, you get young girls who are really emotional and blah, 
you know, they, they just go crazy because they're, that's the way they are. You, you have them see both themselves and what brought that out in them. What was it about this other girl that made you just in tears when they left? And so you ask these questions, I don't know, mommy. Those things happen. But you, you teach them about themselves and then how they reacted. And uh, it's all part of a relational analysis teaching them. There's some benefits to this. Obviously, character development needs conscious evaluation for growth to occur. This is going to help them grow because they're not going to get from being 2 years old to being 18 years old without a process that, that you can affect and you can hear in the right way. Raising kids in this way is, is a matter of character development. You're developing their character. What are you doing in these conversations when you're talking about their relationship with friends, but you're putting things on the shelves for them to remember later on as they're picking friends? As I pick friends, who should I look for? Ah, here's something. I, I had a friend here before. Remember that friend and how she mistreated me? Or remember that friend and how she encouraged me with, with words of Scripture? These are great things. that They're on the shelves as they're building these relationships. To do this well, you must understand your children and the heart issues that they struggle with. What are those struggles? If you've started at that early age in the funnel of being their, just being their friend and wanting everything to be fun and just all for their happiness, you haven't built a platform for them to trust you in this area so that they'll want to ask you these hard questions when they get older. Okay, lastly, I wanted to look today at biblical character development. And this is just some basics on how to get them obey, get them to obey. And at the beginning of this, I wanted to relook at Colossians 2, 8, and 9. Because this is, there are so many things out there telling us how, to, and we're going to go through the whole chastisement and spanking, as we call it, what that's about. That is such a small part of parenting. Before we get to there, there's so much more that I want to continue to cover. Um, Colossians 2, 8, and 9. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So we want them to follow after Christ. We want to train them not with... Uh, empty and hollow philosophies of man and, and tradition. We want to make sure we're looking at it spiritually on obedience. So the first one here, never give a command unless you intend for it, it to be obeyed. If you give an instruction, if you've told them, I want you to do this, then you should expect it to be done. Don't make it a suggestion. I hear so many parents, Johnny, would you like to clean up your toys right now? No, I really don't want to, Mom is what they were saying. They don't really want to. I want to keep playing because this is fun. So don't ask him a question, Johnny, it's time for you to clean up your toys now. You've given an instruction. You need to clean up your toys. See the difference between the two. It gives him a reason to say, no, I really don't want to. Or uh, do this for daddy, okay? Well, when you put that okay on the end, do do this for daddy, which is great because now they have to do it. If you put okay, they have an option there. You've put a question at the end. Uh, no, I really don't want to, Dad. Okay, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. You did give a clear command there for them to obey. So make sure when you're giving instructions to your kids, make sure that you intend, you made it clear that you intend for it to be obeyed. That's first step. Secondly, when you speak to your child in such a way that requires an action, you should always expect complete and immediate response. You should always expect complete and immediate response. So if you call your child... James, come over here, and he doesn't come. James, come over here, and he comes. I said the second time, what percentage of obedience did I just get? No, well, no, he came the second time. 
50%, right. If I call them a third time, I'm only at 33% obedience. Well, what kind of obedience do we want out of our kids? 100%, yeah. So delayed obedience is disobedience. If they delay in that process, they're, they're not obeying. If you have to call them a second time, that's not it. First time obedience is like the hub of a wheel. That, this is the starting point. If you can get the understanding of your children down in first time obedience, it's amazing how many sins you won't have to deal with. It will correct a lot of stuff in their life and make your life a lot easier. This is the hardest one. It's first time obedience, which means dad or mom gave an instruction, they heard it clearly, and they obey it. Wow. Think of all the hassle that would stop and the blood pressure going up in your body every time you have to deal with them getting to obey you if you did that. This isn't going to happen overnight if you haven't been doing it. This takes work to get them to do it. This is a problem of the parent's expectations, not so much in the child, because the parents have just allowed it. I think of uh, 1 Samuel 15. Saul was told to destroy the Amalekites, destroy all of them, do not leave a single living thing there when he, when he went after them. And later on, here he comes back, and uh, you, you remember the whole story there of, of it was Nathan was saying, what is that noise I hear, bleeding of sheep? Well, it's because I saved, Saul says, I saved the best of the sheep to sacrifice, and I saved the king. He didn't obey completely, and he got chastised for it. He was told to do something, he was told to do it complete, and he didn't do it, and didn't do it immediately. So we want to make sure if... We don't want to be causing our children to sin by not calling them to obedience properly. Uh, sometimes it's wise to leave, give a warning. Okay, so they're they're playing and they're building Legos and, and building something. You can see that, you know the tower's about this tall and it's getting up near the top or whatever they're doing. And uh, give them a, you know what we're going to clean up in five minutes. I want you to clean up your toys rather than I need you to clean up your toys now. Now think of what that does. It gives them time to emotionally disengage from what they're doing. Because they're playing with this, they've got the story in their mind that they're playing, or dolls or something like that. Now they can disengage in it in a little bit of time. They know that in five minutes it'll be time to clean up. That's really helpful. That will help you to stop exasperating your child because of telling them, I need you to put your toys away right now. They can't do that. I remember the story that was told to us the very first time we heard this was an example of you're watching a television show. And we don't really watch television shows like they used to back in the 80s and, and 90s where Little House on the Prairie. And so you, you see the stories unfolding and you see Michael Landon crying. You know it's near the end of the show. <laughs> so right then is not when you say, up, oh, turn the TV off right now and come to dinner. You let them disengage until the half hour's done or whatever it is. Have some logical wisdom there. It's, oh, I didn't get to hear the end of the story. That will hurt them. So just be wise in that process. Or 24. You know, if you, my daughter and I used to watch 24 together. It was one of our dates on Monday night. It was a ball. And, you know, the dink, dink. You, know, you hear that going, uh-oh. Well, the problem is if you, if you end that right before the end, it's probably actually better because they leave you on a cliffhanger every time. So I, I guess you could do it with that one because you're not. Then having to see the next episode is what they did to you. Okay, so... Um, Really, when you speak at this point was when you speak to your child in a way that requires an action, you should always expect complete and immediate response. Uh, the next one, when a child disobeys, he is in sin. Okay, when a, dis- a child disobeys, he is in sin. When a parent continually reinforces the disobedience, you or they are in sin. If you allow that to keep happening and you don't call them to obedience, you, my friends, parents, are in sin if you're allowing that. And that's something you have to ask ask their forgiveness and the Lord's forgiveness. 
Think about it. If your child, you go to your child, you know what? I've been sinning to you. This is part of going to be your conversation going home, possibly even today with your kids. You know what? I'm, I'm so sorry. I have been sinning by allowing you to not come to first-time obedience. We're going to change what we're doing as a family. We're going to work on first-time obedience. And I'm not going to be perfect at it. You're not going to be perfect. But here's what I'm expecting. I expect complete and immediate response. And you go through what that should look like. And uh, I'll teach you some ways that we, we did this in a second here. But you're in sin. If you're allowing them to keep doing this, you're not, you asked and gave them an instruction, and you're not calling them to it. D, uh, the need for eye contact and verbal response. This is really important to get that eye contact with them that says, do you understand me? And sometimes when they're little, you take their face and you have to look right at their face. Okay, I've given you an instruction. You understand? Yes, mommy. You, know, you, you have to get them because they're all over the place with their, what they're thinking. But stop and getting them to understand, yes, they verbally acknowledge and they saw you. So we would actually work very diligently on this so that if we would call one of our children in the house, Emily, doesn't matter where she was in the house, she knew that she had to come to us when we called her name, every one of our kids, and you hear those feet running down the hallway, come, yes, Daddy, they would come to us and say, yes, Daddy. Wow. We did that for a reason, because we wanted to be able to give them instructions, make sure they clearly understood them. And it was work to get them that way, but I made it fun. So we made it a game. So when they were young, I would take each one of them, and I would, I would put them in one room, and I'd say, now I'm going to go into another side of the room, and we're going to learn first-time obedience of you coming. When I call your name, you come to find where I'm at and say, yes, Daddy. And so we'd do that. She'd be on the other side of the house. Okay, you're on the other side of the house. I go to this side, and Emily, and then she runs around. Yes, Daddy. And so we'd talk. But I built that as a habit into them of coming, and they still do it. Still at the house right now. I've got daughters 24 years old. And Emily, or not Emily, it's Christine, yes, Dad, and she'll come out and look at me. Think about if they don't see you, they don't know what it is, the instruction that you're giving. It may not be clear. Now, they don't have to do it when they're 25 years old, but they've just gotten in a habit, and it makes life so much easier. You've been to houses where there's this screaming going on from, what do you want? You know, it's like, no, that's unacceptable. And maybe Mom and Dad need to do this too. You know, you're, you're on the other side of the house, and honey... What do, you, what do you want? I mean, that's, that's just not a healthy thing in the house. You hear this screaming going on. And, and it can help husbands to come to your wife when she needs something. This morning that happened. Kathy was talking. She's way back in her closet, and I'm on the other end of the house. I think she just said something. I'm going to go check. And you, you walk to the other side. You're yeah. very kind. <laughs> she's trained me well. <laughs> There's an example of this in, uh, in 1 Samuel 3. If you recall... This is where Samuel had been called to the priesthood, remember? And he was living with, with uh, um, Eli. And so Eli um, is in one room, and he's in the other room. It's nighttime, and, and Samuel hears a voice. And so he gets up out of bed, and he goes over to, to Eli and says, Yes, Eli, what is it? And so I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. He went back in his room. So a little while later, he heard a voice. So he ran over to Eli. He got up and went to Eli. And he says, Yes, Eli, what is it you want? I didn't call you. And the third time he says, if you hear this again, it's, Christ, it's the Lord calling you and, and he's speaking to you. What did he do? It was an example of responding visually and verbally. And that's really what we're trying to train our kids. Whatever way you do, they acknowledge you with eye contact and a verbal response. Next, childishness versus foolishness. Childishness is innocent in motive. Sometimes they'll do things and it's just because they were childish. You know, they, they knock something over. Well, you're 
that's a different response you're going to have versus foolishness, which is unwise, rebellious actions. Foolishness would be something like being told not to run in the front room. They run in the front room, and they've knocked something over and broken it. That was foolish. There should be an action. Childishness, they accidentally were out front, and they fell over and knocked over uh, some plants, some brand-new plants, because whatever they were doing, or a ball got kicked in the area. So you want to define between the two. We're going to get into this in some of the uh, chastisement areas and how you chastise these differently. But, but understand that there is a difference between these two. And you want to segment, was this a childish act or was this foolish? Foolish is they had instructions and they were a fool. They did not choose to follow those instructions. They did something that got them in trouble. The next one there is active rebellion versus passive rebellion. There's a difference between active rebellion <coughs> is... is you were told to do something, and you just plain didn't do it. Or you were told not to do something, and you did it. You actively disobeyed. And sometimes the first child will do this. Here's the line, man, I'm just running right over it to go do something. Because they don't care about it, and they're going to get chastised for it. As opposed to a passive rebellion is doing something good instead of what was instructed. Okay? You tell them to take out the trash. Instead, they go and clean the room, and they clean the countertops, but they didn't take out the trash. Well, that was nice that you did these other things, but you did it to avoid something else. You were passively saying, I don't want to do that in some way, shape, or form. But, Dad, I don't like the smell of the trash. Well, nobody likes the smell of the trash. That's why we want to take it outside. You know, that's one of those things you have to do. The sin is also often not putting enough thought into remembering the instruction. <coughs> oh, I forgot. And I know it's easy for kids to get in that thing where you tell them something to do and they forgot. Well, it's not so much they forgot, but they, they didn't put enough effort into remembering and actually acting upon it. I get in trouble for this. My wife tells me, honey, would you go and do such and such for me? Okay, I'll get to it. I'm busy on the computer. I'll get to it. And next thing you know, I hop in bed a few hours later. Did you? Oh, okay, I'll go do it right now. So it's because I didn't put enough effort and thought into remembering it and saying, I need to do that or write, write myself a note. We want to train our kids to be known for being told to do something, and they do it. That's what obedience is. And sometimes it's good for us to add in verbal reminders to them. It's not a sin to to remind your kid at some level. You know, it's the end of the day, and they were supposed to bring up the trash cans out from the curb, and that's their job. Hey, Dad's coming home. Have you remembered to bring the trash cans in? Oh, I forgot. They knew it was their chore. They hadn't done it, but just that little verbal reminder can help them. It's, It's not bad to do that, to give them a verbal reminder. As a part of this, you don't want to be a silent, delayed parent where you're just sitting back watching him. You know, I'm watching what he's doing. I see he's going to do this, and he's going to sin right here. He's going to do this, and I'm going to get him, and I gotcha. That's bad if we're allowing our kids to go to that point. We need to sometimes give them a warning. You're cruising for a bruising. You know, you're going to be in trouble here if you continue down this path rather than just letting them, silently letting them do these things that are going to get them into a path of sin. We see them crossing this line, and we're not immediately telling them, hey, you're crossing the line right there. Instead, we say, oh, we're going to wait till they're way out here, and they really need to be rescued at that point. So there's a uh, point to that. Um, next, pain. Pain is a gift from God. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> yeah, that one... We, we will learn how to do this. Um, it calls serious attention to a condition that desperately needs changing. Pain will do that. You cut your hand real hard. You know that you need to do something with your hand because you just injured yourself and you'll bleed out if you didn't. It calls attention to it. That pain it needs to be changed. And there's three ways that we'll see this pain. First is natural consequences. There's a natural 
occurrence that will happen if they do certain things. If your child goes, um, we used to have a real steep driveway in Placerville, and we told the kids, don't take your big wheels too far up the driveway because you're going to come down too fast, and you can hurt yourself. Well, what do they do? They keep getting higher and higher. Next thing you know, another little brother or sister follows them up there, and they just come screaming down the driveway, and they run into something. They come in the house. They've disobeyed me, but their knees are bloody. Do I need to give them a spanking? <laughs> no. They, they got the pain. They figured it out. There's a natural consequence because their knees are skinned up. See, mommy knows what's best. Daddy knows what's best for you. See what God does? He gives us pain when we're disobeying mommy. You use it as a teaching process. Uh, we had this with a broken window one time. Oh, one of our kids thro- throwing snowballs out front and made an ice ball. Didn't realize it. We're on a vacation at a vacation house and threw it at the window and it was an ice ball and broke the window. He knew he should have been throwing snowballs at the window, but it broke a window. We had to stop our vacation and get this window replaced on New Year's Eve, and it was a, it was a mess. You guys, will, you'll be through that in your life if you haven't yet. But he had to pay for that window. It was a hundred and some bucks. There was a natural consequence. It wasn't. We need to spank you because you did something to disobey. There was a natural consequence that caused that. It's their labor for paying for car repairs when they get older. You know they spin their tires too much or they do stupid things right they're going to have to pay for those things those are there's so many natural consequences that can happen as they grow up and we're going to try to keep them from avoiding the wrong consequences Uh, another pain is chastisement chastisement that's to inflict pain for the purpose of amending behavior and getting them back into the circle of blessing so we're going to use different consequences to bring them back, different ways to get them to respond from their disobedience. Pain is a way that God will cause some. Sometimes we will use an artificial method called uh, chastisement. I put a bunch of Bible verses down. There's a lot of verses. We're going to do a whole class on this, on, on how to chastise, to say, you know what, that was not worth the pain for me to have to deal with that. I'm going to learn not to do that anymore, whether it be a sin of lying, something in their heart, something rebellious will cause, there will be some pain to inflict. Uh, and also we can use isolation. Sometimes by, by being out here outside the circle, there will be a, a cutoff for a period of time where, you know what, you're going to be cut off from us. You're out of the circle of blessing, so there's a big gap right here. You, you're, you're not going to be a part of our family. We're, we're just going to go on without you. And maybe they're isolated in their room as a, as a three-year-old in their playpen or something like that. Um, or maybe when they're older, you're using it. They, they will be isolated from their friends. You're not going to be able to go to that party because you didn't do this or you did these actions. There's a result of this, a temporary taking away of the privilege of social contact. There's a value to that. Oh, you know what? I'm not going to do that again because I don't want to miss out on this um, living long and things, things aren't going well for me. And you can think of teenagers. All things won't be going well with them when things like that happen. Okay, that is a whole mouthful. I hope that's just a lot of ideas to get you to thinking about relations with your kids. Um, and part of your homework, I think I put it at the bottom, you have a little bit of reading, is come back. Oops, and I forgot to do relationship to friend here. To another friend. So do this relational inventory, and this is great for couch time. If you're spending time together uh, on the couch, um, if you have a little tiny six month old and that's all you have still there's a way that you can think about these things and talk about them and say how could we implement this when we get older with our kids when, when we're dealing with our kids um, it, it's something where it's good for you to do and, and Brandy I'm thinking with you with, with not having a husband take the time 
I'm sorry, not having a husband spiritually doing, uh, doing this with you for a spiritual purpose, but talk to him. Say, hey, let's, let's talk about our kids, each one. And you go through them. We can all use this as ways to, um, to build an understanding spiritually was what we're looking at. And I'm just thinking you can do it in your own mind, a way to think, how can I cognitively think of how I want my child to be growing in the Lord? With that, would you close us in prayer?